Good morning, and welcome to Our American Heritage. I am Mark Chandler, the host of the program. Our American Heritage is a program where we explore in depth the American experience from its beginning through the present. And today we want to continue our little look into some of the founding mothers of the United States. And as we've said in our previous programs, we for so long have looked at founding fathers of the United States and how our country was formed before the revolution, French and Indian War, then through the American Revolution, then through the early days of the Articles of Confederation. And then when we finally get to the Constitutional Convention in 1787, and then as our country progressed forward. For many years of our history, we simply looked at the founders on a level that made them concrete or made them marble and put them on a a pedestal that we made them above being human. And now in the past 15 years or so, we're honestly looking at our founders. We're honestly looking at our nation's history. And we're putting not only our founders on a human level, but we're also just beginning to scratch the surface on looking at other aspects of American history to give us all a more complete, a fuller picture of exactly all the different aspects of our history. And I wish that I was a young historian again, not because I want to relive my youth, but because being an historian today and moving forward, particularly with the young historians, is an exciting time because they're beginning to really look at so much of American history and to incorporate it into more of our history to give us all a much rounder view, a much clearer view of American history than just one aspect of it that we looked at for so long. What the issue could possibly be, and oftentimes is today, is many people are writing different aspects of American history today that's giving just a particular slant to American history and not putting it all together. We need to put it all together. We need to look at the good, the bad, the ugly, the warts, the good things, the bad things. And if we emphasize one over the other, it gives us a distorted view of our history, of life, of anything. So as we progress forward in American history, as we progress forward, there is a battle going on with historians and in education to properly put all of our history together and to look at our nation, I believe, in even more grateful eyes than particularly if what we have looked at for 200 years. Because if we look at our founding fathers as humans and look at what they were able to do in their humanity and their faults, The miracle of our country is even greater than simply just putting these people on a pedestal and not being able to ever reach them or see their humanity. And it's the same with all of our history. What has been done to African Americans, what have been done to Native Americans, what has been done to immigrants, what have been done to women throughout our history, and how that process of equality for all has continued and is still continuing throughout our history. Do I believe in the greatness of America? Yes, I do. Do I believe in exceptionalism? I certainly do. And it's because of our freedom. And it's because of what we're able and allowed to do. Not necessarily because only the great things that our country has been able to do and the opportunities that America has given all of us. 
but because of being able to continue to process through and struggle through the humanity and the society and the education of our country. We are, we the people of the United States, in order to create a more perfect union. So our founders defined our constitution to be a constitution of process, of continuing to make it a more perfect union, a more confident union, a union where the equality is for everyone. And we need to keep that in mind, particularly as we see so much going on in our education today of now just going to the other extreme, so to speak, and emphasizing where and what our country has done wrong, where our country has fallen short. And we need to put that in perspective with what is going on to continue to correct those horrible, awful mistakes and to continue to create a more perfect union. So this is why I decided to take a brief time to look at some of the founding mothers. And this is not a complete list. This is only scratching the surface. And hopefully listeners will be motivated to go out and read about some of our founding mothers and how so many women have has such an integral part in American history from our beginning all the way through today. And I usually don't do this until the end, but I'll do this just to make sure I get them in today. Uh, Carol Birkin has written a wonderful book called Revolutionary Mothers. I highly encourage you all to get Carol Birkin's book and read that. Her book is Revolutionary Mothers. Linda DePaul has written a wonderful book called Founding Mothers. Janine Bracken has written a book called Women in the American Revolution. And if you want to read a book that really gives you tremendous importance and seeing how much so many women played in the importance of the American Revolution, it's a wonderful book. And one of my favorite people, Cokie Roberts, booked on Founding Mothers and what she was able to do to continue to open a lot of our eyes to so many things that the women of America had done. And then for our local listeners, Dr. Nancy Lone has written a book about the women of Valley Forge called Following the Drum. And she talks about the women at Valley Forge and the importance that the women played at Valley Forge. And she brings so many of those women to light and the important situations that they had and took care of at Valley Forge. And we look forward to Nancy's next book that she's in the process of writing. So there are just a few books I encourage you all to read and look at and to begin to give us a broader understanding and appreciation for American history. We looked in past programs at Martha Washington as an important founding mother and what she was able to do before the revolution, during the revolution, and then President Washington's two terms in office and how she was able to maintain Mount Vernon during the revolution and all the help that she gave George Washington in support as general and then also as president. Martha Washington was a great advocate for education for women. And the Martha Washington College was established in 1860. We also talked about Abigail Adams, the importance that she played in John Adams' role as president, diplomat, founding father, writer throughout his life. And John and Abigail Adams had a tremendous relationship. John Adams was considered, if not the best, one of the two best lawyers in the colonies at the time. And John Adams constantly was always referring to Abigail Adams and was so challenged 
by her own intellect and challenging so many of his points of view to either clarify them or correct them or add to them. So Abigail Adams plays an important role in the life of John Adams and also in the life of her son, John Quincy Adams. And so many of the writings that she had and correspondence she had throughout her career. And remember, Seneca College Research Institute since 1982, has consistently ranked Abigail Adams as one of the top three most highly regarded first ladies in America. So Abigail Adams has a significant role. Mary Otis Warren, American activist, poet, playwright, writer, published many poems and plays attacking the royal authorities in Massachusetts. Remember, that would be considered treason. She, in 1788, wrote a pamphlet observations on the new constitution, the federal and state convention. She wrote under a synonym name, a Colombian patriot, a prolific writer. And her writings were well-respected and well-read. Most people thought that Elbridge Sherry wrote their pamphlets, but we now know it was Mercy Otis Warren who wrote those. John Adams constantly or particularly thanked James Warren, Mercy Owens Warren's husband, for so much that she was able to do in her time in writing and correspondence and the thoughts that she had throughout the time period. Lydia Dara was a Philadelphian, born in Ireland, Quaker. She became an informant to George Washington's army and George Washington during the winter encampment at Valley Forge gave him significant information, actually saved the army because she informed Washington that at Plymouth or at White Marsh, General Howe was trying to goad him into a sneak attack and for Washington not to take the bait, which he did not. And he moved his army then off into Valley Forge for the winter. And then Lydia was able to get information to Washington throughout the winter out of Valley Forge to help General Washington survive the winter at Valley Forge. So there was a brief overview of some ladies we looked at. Another one that oftentimes we overlook is Lucy Flucker Knox. Lucy Knox, a Bostonian by birth. Her parents were loyalists. Her family were loyalists. Actually, her sister was an actress who was a loyalist and acted in several of the plays during the British occupation in New York City. She married Henry Knox, and Henry Knox was a bookstore owner. Her parents did not approve of Henry Knox, one, because he was not wealthy, two, because he was a patriot, and Lucy Flucker's family were loyalists, and they actually disowned her. When she married Henry Knox, her family actually disowned her, and Lucy went into Henry Knox's bookstore in Boston, and they fell madly in love, and they were married without the approval of Lucy's family, and it cost Lucy dearly for the rest of her life as far as her relationship with her family. When Henry Knox and Lucy decided it was time to get out of Boston during the occupation, the British occupation in Boston, Lucy sewed Henry's pistol and sword in her dress, underneath her dress. So as they went through the British lines, she was able to get his pistol and his sword through the British lines because Lucy was not a very thin person and she was able to sew his sword and pistol in her dress and get his pistol and sword out of Boston for Henry Knox. Tragically, they had 13 children and the tragedy is only three of their children lived to adulthood. It's just astounding what's happened to so many of these people. 
Many times at the winter encampments, Lucy Knox would organize the officers' wives, and they would go out and collect supplies of whether it was food or clothing for the soldiers. Many times at the winter encampments, Lucy Knox would take the younger wives, the younger officers' wives, and try to help them, encourage them to be what it was to be an officer's wife and what she could organize and what they could organize to help not only the officers, but the Army in every winter encampment. Particularly, she really tried to help Caddy Green quite a bit, specifically at Valley Forge during the winter encampment. Lucy Knox presided over many of the military celebrations at the camps. And during the winter encampments, uh, boredom oftentimes set in. And so there was always cause for military celebrations at several of the camps to lift the spirits, to give the men and the officers' wives more importance uh, or purpose. And Lucy Knox was the one who oversaw all the celebrations and actually all the post Revolutionary War ceremonies, national ceremonies, Lucy Knox was in charge of organizing them. President Washington's inauguration, President Washington asked Lucy Knox to plan the inauguration, which she did for President Washington. And then when Henry Knox was Secretary of War, Lucy Knox plays a significant role in supporting Henry Knox, encouraging Henry Knox, giving him more thoughts to think about as a secretary of war. So again, we think of Henry Knox, but don't put aside Lucy Knox, extremely important. One of the founding fathers of our constitution and one of the great thinkers of the day was George Mason. And Sarah Brent Mason, George Mason's second wife, his first wife passed away. He married, George Mason married Sarah Brent in 1780. She was 46 years old when she married George Mason. He was 55. Sarah had a a rather large endowment from her family. And the key there was she would get the endowment if she remained single. And so when she married George Mason, she gave up her endowment to marry George Mason. And George Mason was a deep thinker, and he had great influence, particularly with the uh, Constitutional Convention, even though he didn't particularly support it. A lot of his thinking went into, a lot of his thoughts went into the founding of our Constitution. And it was Sarah who continued to encourage George to fight for his constitutional plans, to continue in the fight, to keep his ideas relevant, to keep putting them out there, not to back down from them, even though, again, George Mason did not attend the Constitutional Convention. So many of his ideas were implemented in this wonderful document that we call the Constitution. When the British invaded Virginia in 1780 into 1781, it was Sarah Mason who protected all of Mason's children when they invaded Virginia in 1780-1781. She was the sounding board for George Mason's ideas on the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and for other legal documents that he so cherished in the founding of our country. Throughout the different mental stages and physical problems that George Mason had, George always said that Sarah was the balancing point for him. So he had great respect for Sarah, appreciated 
Sarah's life and what she meant to him so that he was able to continue with the thoughts of getting us to the Constitution and then supporting the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to our Constitution. And so even though George was a delegate to the Constitutional Convention, he wrote the Virginia Declaration of Rights. He convinced the Federal's government to add the Bill of Rights to the Constitution. And none of these things would have happened without the direct support of Sarah Brett Mason. So she plays a significant role in the background, yes, but in the importance of what George Mason was able to do for our country and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Phyllis Wheatley is another extremely important founding mother in American history. She was the first African-American author to publish a book of poetry. She was brought here as a slave, brought here from West Africa. She was kidnapped and enslaved at age seven. Uh, The Wheatley family in Boston bought her. They taught her how to read and how to write. And the reason her name is Phyllis was because the ship that she was brought over on as a slave was Phyllis. So her name was Phyllis Wheatley. She began to write poetry at age 14. Later on, one of the Wheatley sons, Nathaniel Wheatley, took her to London to get her poetry published. And also for her own health, as she suffered from asthma, took her to London to help her regain her health. And there she was published as a female African-American poet. Um, Phenomenally, at age 12, she was able to read Greek and Latin. Eventually, the, the Wheatley family gave her freedom. Several times throughout Washington's leadership as general and then as president, she would send poems to George Washington, and she would entitle them to His Excellency George Washington. Washington invited Phyllis Wheatley to visit his headquarters at Cambridge, Cambridge, Massachusetts, in March of 1776. She wrote volumes several volumes and poems in support of the American Revolution. And so we see Phyllis Wheatley as an extremely important author in the founding of our country, the supporting of our country. And we see how much of encouragement she was to so many people as a writer. She wrote many poems of the revolution, religious morals, freedom of slavery, And Washington, and let me quote General Washington. General Washington wrote to Phyllis Wheatley, your style and matter of poetry exhibits striking proof of your poetic talents. And this is a a great, great testament to Phyllis Wheatley and what she was able to do to help the American Revolution and help the cause of freedom, help our founders write the Constitution. She is actually featured with Abigail Adams and Lucy Stone in the Boston Women's Memorial. In 2002, a sculpture was placed of Phyllis Wheatley on Commonwealth Avenue in Boston. In 2012, Robert Morris University named the Communication Building at the university in her honor. And also in Jensen Beach, Florida, there is a school named for her, the Phyllis Wheatley School. So Phyllis Wheatley, born in Africa, brought here as a slave, given her freedom, tremendous writer, tremendous support for the American Revolution. And one more I like to talk about is when we think about the Molly Pitcherts, we oftentimes think of the woman at Monmouth County Courthouse who was Mary Ludwig Hayes, Battle of Monmouth. But there was actually many women during the American Revolution that were the Molly Pitcherts. Uh, Margaret Corbin is one of them. 
Margaret Corbin in 1776, her husband, John Corbin, was one of 600 American soldiers defending Fort Washington, which was north of Manhattan, as Washington was moving his army over to White Plains and then ultimately down through New Jersey over into Pennsylvania. And so there were 600 American soldiers. They were attacked by 4,000 Hessian soldiers. And John Corbin was on a crew, on an artillery crew, and he was killed. Margaret Corbin was able to go with John because she had nursing skills. And so she was able to go with John to support him and the soldiers, particularly as a nurse. And during the battle, John Corbin was killed. And immediately, Margaret Corbin took his post, took his post as an artillery person and fired the cannon. So she was able to clean it and aim it with great ease and speed, just like her husband that she saw him do. And all the other soft soldiers that were there, they said this was the beginning of her military career. She later became the first woman in American history to receive a pension from Congress for her military service because she was wounded, severely wounded in the battle after her husband was killed. And she was actually then ultimately enlisted in the Corps of Invalids in the American Revolution. Margaret was born in Pennsylvania. She married John Corbin when she was 21 years old. She supported her husband in the revolutionary conflicts. The soldiers actually gave her the nickname Molly Pitcher. And all the women who were part of the American Revolution, that's what they were called, similar to World War II, where we get the Rosie of the Riveters. She was severely wounded at this battle up behind Fort Washington, and she was wounded in the arm, in her chest, and in the jaw. And she suffered tremendously for the rest of her life with and from those wounds. The Hessens ultimately won this battle, and she was captured as a prisoner of war, but as the British standard was, if you were wounded in prison for it, you were released on parole. So Margaret was released on parole. She eventually went to Philadelphia, lived for the rest of her life in the Philadelphia area. And tragically, she died at age 48 years old in High Plains, New York, mostly from her wounds. She was granted $30 from the Executive Council of Pennsylvania to cover her needs and then eventually her case was passed up to the Congressional Board of War. And in July of 1779, the board was very sympathetic towards Margaret's injuries and so impressed with her service and her bravery, they granted her half the monthly pension of a continental soldier. They gave her a new set of clothes and cash. And so Margaret there became the first woman in the United States to receive a military pension. And then ultimately, in 1781, the Corps of Invalids became part of the garrison at West Point. She was discharged from the Continental Army in 1783, and a historical marker is placed near her own monument at West Point. Years later, a memorial commemorating her heroism was erected up by Fort Tyrone Park. And later on, her remains were exhumed and placed by West Point. And the New York Historical Association honored her as no other woman of the revolution had ever been honored before. And then the Daughters of the American Revolution, the Margaret Corbin Monument, was erected in her honor at the West Point Cemetery when her body was exhumed and then reinterred with the full military honors at the Military Academy. So this is, again, just a sample of a few of the women that had a significant role in the beginning of the American history. So again, I encourage you to look past 
look much deeper into the story of our country. And we'll appreciate everyone who had this tremendous opportunity to help the American Revolution and the founding of our country. So we want to honor not only the founding fathers, but also the founding mothers of American history. And again, this is just a sample of the hundreds and hundreds of women who played significant role in American history, particularly at the beginning of our country. So this is WFYL 1180 AM, Working for Your Liberty.